Well, open your Bibles to the book of Haggai. Three books left of Matthew. It's the third to the last book of the Old Testament, a small little part of the designation of genre of Scripture we call the Minor Prophets, which, as we said last week, the Minor Prophets are not minor in terms of their message or importance. They're only minor in terms of their size. They are smaller than the major prophets. I wish that it was the larger and the shorter prophets instead of the major and the minor prophets to clear up any of that confusion. But it is a major message in this little book. We began looking at this book last week, and i got to confess something at the very beginning. I told you it's comprised of four sermons, and it would take us two weeks to get through. And my wife was right, as was Kathy and Bob. We're Kathy and Bob. Uh, we're, we're not gonna we're not gonna finish Haggai this morning. We're we're only gonna get through the second of his four sermons, and I'm making no promises beyond that. Uh, this is such an overwhelming book. I really, really, really hoped I could deliver the rest of this book in one sermon today. And at about page 27, I thought this this is gonna be trouble, and uh, so I uh, I just confessed that. We're only going to do the second of his four sermons, which is in verses 1 through 9 of chapter 2. Haggai chapter 2. Let me read that for us so we have the full sermon in our minds before we go through it verse by verse. On the 21st of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, Governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how does it seem to you now? How do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? But now... Take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more in a little while I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and also the dry land. I will shake all the heavens and they will come with the wealth of all the nations and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. It's reported that everyone at some level and on some issue is phobic. We all have our own set of fears, and typically we have something that we lean into as the thing we're most afraid of. The National Institute of Mental Health has reported upwards of 12.5% of Americans have serious debilitating phobias. Interestingly, phobias are the most common psychiatric illness among women of all ages and are the second most common illness among men of all ages, says the National Institute of Mental Health. I looked up some of these phobias. We've talked about some of these before, but I find these interesting. These are legitimate conditions that the the Bible of the Psychiatric Community, the Diagnostics and Statistics Manual, says are serious problems that you could have. Aerophobia, which is the fear of swallowing air, a debilitating fear. Arachabutyrophobia, the fear of peanut butter sticking to the roof of your mouth. Anupshuaphobia, the fear of staying single. Gammaphobia, the fear of marriage. 
Barophobia, the fear of gravity. Boogieophobia, I'm not making this up. The fear of the boogeyman. Decyophobia, the fear of making decisions. Epistemophobia, the fear of knowledge. How about this one? Geniophobia, the fear of chins. Memophobia, the fear of memories. Palatophobia, the fear of bald people. Trichopathophobia, the fear of hair. It'd be terrible if you have both of those phobias. Um, then there's a panophobia. You know what panophobia is? Pan, the fear of everything. And I love this. And I'm going to try this uh, uh, practice, but I don't know how I'm going to do. Hippopata monstrosa esquipid aleophobia, which is the fear of long words. In Victorian times, there was an intense fear of being buried alive. So when people, when someone died, a small hole was dug from the casket up to the surface, and then a string was tied around the, the, the deceased's finger, which was passed up through a small hole to a loud bell that was hung on the surface of the grave. Then, if someone was to be buried alive, you could flick your finger and ring the bell, and whoever was up and above would, on duty, would then come and unbury you and dig you up, and you could keep living. They were on shift 24 hours a day, and that's where we get the term, he's working the graveyard shift, so you could hear if someone was buried alive. Everybody is afraid of something. What, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of most? Do you have multiple fears? Do you have a single animated fear? At the center of the book of Haggai is an odd sort of fear. God, through the prophet Haggai, is going to probe our deepest fears that we may or may not know we even have in this second of his four sermons this morning. So last week, just a little review, we looked at the first sermon that Haggai preaches, and it's about procrastination of doing what's right, procrastination of doing what God has called us to do, commanded us to do. We looked at the fact that postponed obedience is really just disobedience. Haggai, as we said last week, is very different from the other prophetical books in a lot of ways. Uh, First of all, other prophets deal very seriously with big and overwhelming sins, identifiable sins, very pronounced sins like idolatry, like superstitious worship, like social injustice, spiritual and physical adultery, violence, and rejection of God's law. Yet Haggai deals with a far more subtle sin but no less soul-damaging attitude on the part of the people of God then, and that is that sin that he identifies is resident in our own today, and it's the sin of apathy. I don't careism, spiritual irresponsibility, indifference, laziness in a spiritual sense, ultimately procrastinating what God has called us to do at the expense of doing what we want to do. It's the sin of not caring enough about God and his standards and priorities in our own lives. And this whole book, two short chapters, is about misplaced priorities and how to correct them. Remember the context. This is important that we we understand, and I know we did this last week, but just just a very brief review of the context that, that we have to understand when we drop into Haggai. The southern tribe of Israel was taken by Babylon into captivity and three deportations between 605 and 586 B.C. And you'll remember that um, after Solomon, his son Rehoboam uh, was a king and Jeroboam staged a, a rebellion and he took the northern ten of twelve tribes into its own nation, which confusingly was called Israel, and the southern two tribes were called Judah, and also Israel, and the whole thing was called Israel. So when you're reading the prophets, you kind of have to make sure that when, when we're seeing Judah and Israel, we're identifying exactly what that is. Well, these southern two tribes were, were taken into captivity by Babylon a few hundred years before. The northern tribe was taken into captivity into Assyria, judged and then brought back. 
Now the southern two tribes are taken into captivity by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar into Babylon. He hijacked them. He kidnapped them. He left his own puppet king in charge when he left Jehoiakim, who is the king, his uncle, named Zedekiah. Zedekiah eventually rebels against Nebuchadnezzar, which brings his wrath in 586. He comes back and ransacks the, the city. And most importantly, it's at that point that he levels the temple of God. He sets fire to the temple, steals all of its gold and silver implements, strips it bare, and then levels it stone by stone. It's not very long, however, until Nebuchadnezzar, who is the king in Babylon, is overtaken and overcome by Persia. Persia becomes the world power. Israel is promised by, by Jeremiah to be taken into captivity for an exact period, 70 years, exactly 70 years. And we find Daniel reading about this prophecy in Daniel chapter 9 and realizing that the time of captivity has come to an end and God was going to release his people. Isaiah 45 1 predicts that Persia would rise up, overcome Babylon through a specific king named Cyrus and that's exactly what happened. So Daniel's reading Jeremiah 25 11 and realizes the time is up. It's time for the people to go home. And sure enough, Cyrus, the king of Persia, gives a decree to return to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple and establish their worship. Ezra chapter 1 verses 1 to 4 records that decree and we read it in detail last week. Well, just as the exile took place in three stages, he took the people over in three different deportations, the reestablishment of the nation happens in three deportations and God sends the first most important detail back to Israel first with one specific, all-defined, all-encompassing task and that was rebuild the temple. This first group was to return so that as the other people returned, they would come and see the city of Jerusalem sitting on that Mount Zion hill, Mount Moriah, and the first thing they would see is the temple has been rebuilt. God reigns. He is our God, and we are back to becoming normal in our nation and in our worship of God. It was to happen first, because God was the priority for the people. At this point in history, we, we come to the book of Haggai. The remnant returns. They're under a general, a, a governor named Zerubbabel. They begin the temple. And then they get sidetracked. How sidetracked? When we open the book of Haggai, it has been 18 years since they began. I just envision these tumbleweeds kind of rolling across the, the slabs of stone on the Temple Mount. Scaffolding half up and half ripped down. It's an unfinished building that the people walked by and saw every day. But, as we learned last week in the first sermon... They had not been lazy about everything during those 18 years. They had given special and specific and detailed attention to, it's an interesting Hebrew word, paneling their houses, which is just, just means decorating them, making them fortified. They had put a lot of time, energy, resources, money, effort into building their own houses and taking care of their own priorities and had left God's priorities and God's temple desolate. We looked at that last week, and we'll cover the lesson from that here in just a moment. But Haggai remains the faithful preacher, and we'll bring them a second sermon in chapter 2. We outline this very simply in our discussion of this book, looking at recalibrating our priorities. And specifically, we began saying that if you look at these four sermons, the message of each sermon gives us a four-step plan for recalibrating your priorities. And these steps were as equally relevant to them as they are now. I want to confess to you, I, I love nuthetic biblical counseling where you see the, the strength and the authority and the sufficiency of God's Word and how it speaks directly into our situation from the ancient past 
This is an absolute heart counseling manual that God gives through Haggai for what's most important to us, for our priorities. It's a four-step plan for recalibrating your priorities. The first is the first sermon we looked at last week, so I'll just highlight it. It's evaluate your resources and time. As I said, the people have been very busy for the last 18 years, but not doing what God called them to do in rebuilding the temple. They've been very busy, busy in decorating, paneling, fortifying, and fixing up their houses. Footnote. There's nothing wrong with decorating, remodeling, and fixing up your house. Nothing wrong at all. But when that becomes a priority so much that God and his priorities are elbowed to the shadows, that's the problem. He deals with the Jews' complacency and calls them to consider their values. Literally, he says twice in this sermon, consider your ways, and we looked at that. It means to lay out your life, lay out the paths of your living. Look at what you're doing and repent. Take some time to consider where you are and change. The good news of Haggai is that they did. Most of the prophets, frankly, end bad. The people run from God and they run from his standards. They run from his call. They don't listen to the sermons and they get judged. These people repent. God gives them another chance and guess what? They take it. It's good news on the hand of God giving another chance. It's good news on the people taking advantage of that grace. But in Ezra chapter 4, verse 4, we read, the people of the land discouraged, the people who were living there, remember, well, another footnote, when the people were taken to Babylon for those 70 years, there were the uh, people invaded into Jerusalem, into the land of Israel, and began to take up residence, the Canaanites, and they, uh, there were some Jews left, and they began to intermarry with those Jews, and that's why you have a, a, a group of people known as the Samaritans who were, they can, Jews considered them half-breeds and compromisers because they intermarried with the inhabitants and you see them alive and well during the time of Jesus. But those people were still there. The people moved back and now the original owners of this land are there and the invaders are there as well. Well, those people come and discouraged in Ezra 4, 5, 4, 4 rather, discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building the temple. They hired counselors or manipulators, politicians against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. At the end of that chapter, Ezra writes, then the work of the house of God in Jerusalem ceased and it was stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia and that's where we find ourselves in Haggai. People got discouraged. They got afraid, frankly, as we'll find out in a few minutes. They were afraid of building the temple. They were afraid of obeying God. Well, the word of the Lord came by Haggai in chapter 1, verse 3. It's time for you yourselves. Is it time for you to dwell in your paneled houses when this house lies desolate? You yourselves are working on your own and not the Lord's priorities. He gives them a chance to repent in verse 8. Go to the mountains, get wood, rebuild the temple. And they do it. Again, verse 9. Because my house which lies desolate while each of yours runs to his own house. I recognize the sin. I'm, I'm identifying the sin. I'm letting you know about the sin and giving you a chance to repent of the sin. And the people do it. It's so encouraging. They obeyed the voice of the Lord their God in verse 12. And the people showed reverence for the Lord. They obeyed and they feared and showed reverence to God. That's a good story. I wish that the book ended at the end of chapter 1. But it doesn't. Which brings us to Haggai's second sermon, the Lord's second word to the people, which we'll devote our attention to now. And we find our second step in this four-step plan for recalibrating our priorities. Not only evaluate your resources and time, secondly, reset your standards of comparison. Reset your standards of comparison. Something happens between the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. Between 1.15 and 2.1, the building project came again to a screeching halt. They stopped. 
They started, they, they repented, they got things going, and then they stopped again. So Haggai has to preach another sermon. Verse 1. On the 21st of the seventh month, the word came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, talk to the leadership, son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, this is the guy in charge, that's the one who is responsible for all the rebuilding, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, that's the one who is in charge of the spiritual development, and to the remnant, that's everybody, that kind of groups everyone together, so everybody's to hear this, and say, by the way, he's going to repeat those designees again, and he asks the question, God says, let me ask you a question. Who among you, this is very interesting, who among you saw this temple in its former glory? In other words, who remembers Solomon's temple, which by all accounts has been estimated by architects in looking at, at 1 Kings and how it's described as the greatest, most magnificent, ma- magnificent building ever built? Who's left among you who remembers it, who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? He answers for them. (laughs) Does it not seem to you like nothing, key phrase, in comparison? As the people are coming near the completion of the temple, after a delay... They look at it, and then they stop the finishing touches on it. It's been less than two months since Haggai's first sermon, think about that, eight weeks or so, and the people resumed to constructing the temple, but now they slow down because they're actually looking at what they've done. They're losing passion, they're losing motivation. Why? Well, I hate to say this. But to a large degree, it was the senior citizen's fault. Why do I say that? Because he says, who among you remembers this temple in its former glory? Stop. That means who among you remembers Solomon's temple that was left here 70 plus years ago? In fact, almost 90 years at this point. These are some older folks. And he looks around at the older folks and says, who remembers that temple? Why is that important? Because their memory of that temple is now being projected and compared to the reality of the current temple. Some of these senior citizens were lamenting the fact that this was a shadow of that former temple. It was far inferior. It was less beautiful Remember, the first temple in Jerusalem was built by King Solomon, the richest man in the world, with all of the resources that he could ever imagine at his hand, and then the people gave extra resources. Gold and silver and cedar and wood and precious stones. And they built a phenomenal, spectacular, magnificent temple. Solomon's temple. Overwhelming. 1 Kings 7 tells us it was made of stones and cedar and overlaid with solid gold. Now the rebuild is a dismal reflection of that. You know, it's, um, it, it's common for us to do remodels and rebuilds. <laughs> no one sets out to do a remodel or a rebuild to make it worse than the first condition. (laughs) But that's what happens here. Why? They didn't have the money. Remember, Babylon took all their gold and silver, all the implements. They were giving, they were pooling their resources, but they didn't have the same resources that Solomon had. Frankly, it was impossible for them to reduplicate Solomon's temple. But it wasn't impossible for them to obey God in rebuilding it. God nowhere says, rebuild Solomon's temple, redo his magnificence. 
They start remodeling and they start rebuilding. They start building the scaffolding. They start putting the, the implements into the temple. And they realize that this structure is a faded and dim shadow of that former one. And that begins to be the talk of the town. And the senior citizens are telling everybody, this is nothing compared to what we had. What does God say? You're right. Go get more gold. Go get more silver. Get better wood. Is that what God says? Verse 4. But now, be encouraged. Take courage. This is supremely unexpected. You would expect when they say, we don't have the temple that you gave us, Lord. We want to rebuild it. And you, they're not able to. That God would say, you're right. Go fix that. He says, no, 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 no. Take courage. Be encouraged. Don't let this discourage you. Take courage also. And then he's specific. Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and talked to Zerubbabel, and the, the builder, and the high priest, the, the spiritual leader. And take courage, all the people of the land. Everybody take courage, which is the same thing as saying, don't be discouraged. Declares the Lord, and I love this. Look at this word. And work. And work. For I am with you declares the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. I said last week that some commentators say that the book of Haggai is devoid of any significant theology. Can, can I just encourage you that in these few simple verses, the goodness of God, the kindness of God, the graciousness of God, the faithfulness of God, hemorrhage from this text... Haggai informs the people of God's response to their humble efforts and inferior temple. And instead of saying something like, yeah, you're right, this new temple's awful, he says, don't be discouraged. I'm not displeased with this meager attempt without the resources that Solomon had. I'm, I'm not discouraged. You don't be discouraged. I love Zechariah 4.10 when he says, do not despise the day of small things. And his point is, God is after heart issues, not what we measure as splendor issues. The central imperative is in verse 4, work and work. Finish. Work at it. I'm encouraged by that. Here is a simple but profound principle. Over-analysis can lead to paralysis. Over-analysis can lead to paralysis. In other words, if you overthink, you'll underreact. If you overprocess, you'll underperform. If you analyze too much, you'll obey too little. We're all tempted to procrastinate our, our obedience. And, and when you're tempted to wait to obey, you're typically waiting until you have everything worked out your, in your mind. You forfeit then the tangible blessings that come from obeying. We try to get our obedience all in, in kind of stricture and in order so that we understand everything before we do anything. That's not what God says to do here. Obedience is the pathway to contentment. Obedience is the pathway to peace. Obedience is the pathway to blessing. Not overthinking everything. Sometimes I think we, we think about obeying and while we do or while we don't, while we want to, while we don't, more than we think about obeying. Rest assured that obedience draws God's enablement. Obedience draws God's favor and blessing and grace and mercy like a magnet draws metal. Richard Taylor writes, Persistent obedience to God's calling for them, these people, would be accompanied by the enabling blessing of his presence for the accomplishment of things greater than they could imagine. They should forge ahead with their work, drawing strength from the Lord's invigorating presence with them. End quote. 
He says, I am with you. As we said last week, one of my favorite things that we talk about and sing about at Christmas is Emmanuel, which is a name that means God is with us. And God permanently abides with us through his presence, according to John 14, the whole trinity abides with us because of the incarnation and the gift there. But that doesn't mean that God never abided with his people in the Old Testament. He says right here, I am with you. Which is another way of saying, I'm for you, I'm not against you. I'm involved with this with you. I'm not disappointed. I'm not discouraged. Don't don't you be either. Make note of this in your heart. All small steps of obedience are received and welcomed and blessed by God. Even the smallest steps. Verse 6, for thus says the Lord of hosts, the one who's the master over heaven and earth, everyone who lives, once more in a little while, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also and the dry land. I will shake all the nations and they will come with the wealth of all nations. And I will fill this house, this temple, with glory, says the Lord of hosts. What does this mean? Did that happen? How do we interpret this? Well, one principle that we, we always need to remember when we're interpreting the Old Testament is does the New Testament offer us a specific application, implication, and interpretation of this text? And guess what? The New Testament does offer an interpretation, application, and implications of this text. If you want to turn over there, you can look at this with me in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, the writer of the Hebrews refers to this exact statement and talks about when it's going to happen. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 25. The writer says, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Now, in his mind, he has in mind the the, the people of Haggai's day who refused to listen to God speaking and had to be continually urged and encouraged to do that. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns us from heaven. In other words, what you do in this world will affect the next. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised. Here's the quote. Once more, from Haggai, I will shake Not only the earth, but also the heaven. And you say, well, what does that mean? And the writer says, I'm going to answer that. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Oh, now we're talking about created things and heavenly things, past and future, earthly and heavenly Yet this, I mean, this expression, verse 27, once more it denotes the removing of the things that, will, that can be shaken, that are created, so those which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, and by the way, the, the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel and the nation of Israel was shaken and shaken and shaken and ultimately the temple was destroyed again in A.D. 70. He speaks of a day when the kingdom cannot be shaken. Let us show gratitude by which we may offer God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For God, our God, is a consuming fire. So the writer here explains to us what God is communicating through Haggai. First, it looks forward to a coming glorious kingdom that cannot be shaken. Is this the millennial kingdom Or is this the heavenly kingdom? And my answer is there are nuances of both that apply. But it is the future reign of God on this earth in his kingdom, which cannot be shaken. And as a footnote, that's not happening now. It looks forward, secondly, to a time when the kingdom's citizens will be moved to acceptable service to God with reverence and awe, 
The motivation is the reality that God is a consuming fire. So he's speaking of the now and the not yet, the present and the future. The knowledge that God is king, he's coming to establish an unshakable kingdom, motivates us now by the future then to be faithful in the present. Remember who your God is. Remember what he's going to do. He's going to come in judgment. He's going to establish an unshakable kingdom. Now, this would have been important to them because, remember, they were responding to the inhabitants of the land and maybe to Egypt and, and Syria who were still in, in, in Persia who were still threatening them, who were still threats to them to come and do the same thing that Nebuchadnezzar did. He says, listen, no, I'm the king. I am going to establish an everlasting kingdom. Did that happen in Zerubbabel's time? Did that happen in the Jews' time before Christ? Did that happen when Christ came the first time? And the answer is no, because this kingdom was shaken. It was destroyed. There, until the late 1940s, there, there was no nation of Israel at all. And even now, it's hard to look at Israel and say that they are an unshakable kingdom. It, it may be fair to say it's the most shakable kingdom on the planet. Certainly the most threatened. He's saying, I am the king. This is my kingdom. Listen to me. Trust me. I have this covered. He moves from the the spiritual and the futuristic, the prophetical, now to the very practical and immediate. Verse 8. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord. We don't have enough silver. We don't have enough gold. We're not as rich as Solomon. This doesn't look as good as Solomon's temple. And God says, what are you talking about? It's all mine. All mine. Sometimes our obedience is hindered because we are possessive of resources that we think are ours like silver and gold and resources. We have our stuff. We wrongly believe it's our stuff. It's all God's stuff. And he reminds the people of that then. Nobody really owns anything. This comes to bear in Isaiah chapter 66. Thus says the Lord, verse 1, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? Same issue of rebuilding the temple, building a great temple for God. And where is the place I may rest? And then he says this, My hands made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, not to the rich, not to the resourceful, but to the one who is humble, contrite of spirit, who trembles at my word. I've used the example before, I think, with you that, can you imagine going over to... um, uh, when he was alive to Picasso's house and as you're walking through Picasso's house he's invited you over for dinner and you're walking through the living room in toward the kitchen and on your way to the kitchen you see one of his beautiful paintings on the wall and you pick it up and you take it off and you round the corner in the kitchen and you say Mr. Picasso I just want you to know how much I appreciate you I want to give you this painting as a way to say thanks <laughs> he would say um, I, I don't know if you're aware but I painted that, that that's mine you say, that's, a, that's silly. That's exactly what God is saying in Isaiah 66 and here in, in uh, Isaiah, excuse me, Haggai 2. It's all mine. All we're doing with possessions on this planet is rearranging molecules for a little while until we die. That's all we're doing. And all the molecules are God's. He says, I have all the silver. I have all the gold. I've given you what you have. And instead of... Instead of using your resources, chapter 1, and your time to build the temple and obey me, you have spent it on yourself. You're complaining that it doesn't look as good as Solomon's when you're not even using what you have. And then we come to an unexpected pronouncement and conclusion to this sermon. This this would have blown the senior citizens away. They would have scratched their heads and said, what is Haggai saying? Remember, they they remember Solomon's temple. Verse 9. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former. 
the glory of this temple will be greater than Solomon's temple, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Remember, these people are being influenced by the senior citizens who remembered Solomon's temple. They are... They're influenced by this, this world of comparison. They're comparing, comparing, comparing. They don't feel me- measuring up. They don't feel like they, they've uh, been faithful. But through Haggai, God proclaims the most unexpected reality. He says, okay, I'm going to compare. You've been comparing. Now it's my turn. And he says, this temple will have greater glory than Solomon's. How? It's a mere shadow of what that, that temple was. A dim shadow. But this temple would actually exceed Solomon's temple in its glory, in its magnificence, in its significance. It's not difficult to imagine that the people would have been shocked, halted by this message. How could this humble, meager attempt at a temple be greater in any way than Solomon's? Even without understanding, the people take God's encouragement to heart and they do begin to rebuild the temple. They actually believe him. They don't understand it all. And, spoiler alert, they they would not understand it all before their deaths. But God promises always intend to bring encouragement to obedience even if we don't see every fulfillment of those promises in the immediate. They did what God asked them to do regardless of how they felt. And and they, they rebuilt this meager temple. Now, just a little footnote, it would be meager and Herod would see that and he would doctor it up and Herod would take this temple and give it another remodel. That would be the temple that Jesus would come to. We back up from that a second. We can learn from Haggai, from God through Haggai and from these people's response that when you cannot see beyond the moment, when you cannot reach beyond what you feel in what seems like humble and meager attempts to please God, little steps of obedience, we learn that God meets our discouragement with grace and hope. He meets our efforts to obey Him and helps us. So what does this mean in verse 9, that God says this temple, which is a shadow of Solomon's temple, would have greater glory than Solomon's? How? How would that happen? Gives me chills to think about. Because in this temple, the Messiah himself, God in flesh, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, would one day walk and establish peace between God and man. This would be the temple where Jesus would be rebuked and argued with and condemned. This would be the temple that he would cleanse. This would be the temple he would reference. This would be the temple that would be the illustration of his own life and death and resurrection. This temple would be the temple of Jesus He would cleanse it with a scourge because of its abuse. He would reference it when he would describe his resurrection. He would be abandoned by the religious leaders there, thus inaugurating the sacrificial atonement of the Son of God. The same temple would see the veil that guarded the Holy of Holies supernaturally from the rest of the court, ripped top to bottom when Jesus' heart stopped. So God says, be careful when you compare. God's ways are not our ways. They had no way of seeing that. But here's the encouraging thing. They believed it and rebuilt the temple. 
and say, God, if you're pleased with our efforts, even though they are not as good as others' efforts, that's enough for me. Be careful comparing. I think we all default unwittingly to comparing our our obedience to someone else's, our faithfulness to someone else's. We should compare our obedience to God's command and if we're faithful to it. Now we need to go back for just a quick moment and pick up a strange command that I skipped on purpose. And I think it's the command around which the entire book revolves. And it's back in verse 5. Because this is the crux of the whole issue. He says in verse 5, Do not fear. Do not fear. Remember those fears we were talking about at the beginning? What are you afraid of? He tells them, do not fear. That's a strange command. Why is he telling them to not fear? And the only answer is because they were afraid. Afraid of what? They had a phobia about obedience. So God reminds them of his permanent abiding presence in the Mosaic Covenant. He says, listen, I I delivered the people from Egypt. I will deliver you. I am a God of salvation for them. I'll be a God of salvation for you no matter what threatens you. But what were they afraid of? Here's the the big reveal, okay? And this is what really drills down on our hearts the deepest. They were afraid of obeying. As I said last week, they were afraid of obedience in two dimensions. First of all, they were afraid if they obeyed, it would cost them something. In other words, if I obey God, if they they feel like, if they obeyed God, then their houses would not be decorated, they wouldn't be taken care of. Is that true? Does God tell us, take care of him at our own expense, no, Matthew 6, says, seek the Lord and his righteousness and all our needs and th- the things that we, we really, really need will be added to us. Potential loss of personal pleasure and happiness, their paneled houses. But what about, what about you and me? My suspicion is, if, you, if you're someone who loves the Lord, if you're someone who's walking with Christ, if you're someone who's trying to obey there's an area, there's, a, there's an area in your life, there's a sin that is involved in your life and when you think about giving it up, deep down you think, if I give up this sin, it will cost me pleasure. It will cost me enjoyment. I will lose something important to me if I obey God. That's what these people thought. And that's what we think. Also, they were concerned about what obedience would cause them. We learn in Ezra 4 that they said, well, if we we rebuild this, then that's going to cause the people around to be threatening to us. And that will invite Egypt to come and Syria to come and Assyria to come back down and Syria as as well as uh, in Persia. We're just, if we rebuild the temple, it's a lightning rod for persecution. And sometimes you and I think, If I obey, that will cause me to be persecuted. That will cause me to be threatened. That will cause me a lack of happiness. The Jews had feared that if they obeyed God, they would suffer unhappiness. They were afraid if they took care of the building of the temple, their own houses would not be taken care of. So if they decorated their houses and made excuses about not finishing the temple, they could do it later. Is there anything in your life that you have found yourself postponing in obedience? Oh, I'll do that after. Oh, I'll I'll, I'll help with the the finances of of a, a work of God after I pay off this bill, after I do that. No, don't be responsible and don't pay your bills. Or there's a, there's a pleasure that you pursue and say, I want to I enjoy this pleasure and then after that, I'll obey God. I'll obey God someday later. What are you afraid you'll lose by obedience? Do not fear, Haggai says. What are you afraid will happen to you if you obey? Haggai says, do not fear. 
Is there a sin? Is there a pleasure? Is there a priority? Is there a possession that you fear will be affected in a negative and adverse way if you obey God? Here's what God promises. You will lose nothing important. And you'll find divine happiness. What are you protecting from God's dealings? I've been thinking about this all week. What what are the things in my life that I tend to protect from God's call to repent? What are you postponing and procrastinating? Is there something for which you're saying, I will deal with that someday after I enjoy X? Have you remembered, will you remember that the pleasure of God's smile awaits obedience? What a God. He says, don't be discouraged. Work do what's right, obey me, I am with you, I provide salvation, I will never let you suffer because of obedience when it comes to pleasure with me. Oh, you may suffer all manner of issues from the world, but you'll have the pleasure of God. Seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness and all the important things that you need and want will be added to you. There's an important principle here about how we evaluate our standards. Resetting our standards of comparison and comparing our obedience to what God has required rather than what everyone else is doing is at the heart. And also not fearing the causes and the costs of obedience. This temple will have great glory because it will give us the context for the ministry and the death of Jesus Christ. The great Savior who loved us, who who died for the sins of those who believe, who taught, who ministered, who sacrificed, who is our example, who is our substitute, who is God in the flesh, who promises to be Emmanuel, God with us forever, who lived and died and rose from the grave, that God in flesh. Accomplishes ministry from the base camp of this temple. Isn't that interesting of God? He says, what happened with this crucified Galilean from Nazareth is more important than Solomon's great glorious building. We need to see from God's perspective, friends. We need to remember God's ways are not ours. This book is all about reestablishing our priorities considering our ways, not fearing. I wouldn't say that this book is devoid of theology or practical application, would you? It feels like it was written for me yesterday. Looking at others can take your eyes off of looking at the Lord. So let's make sure that we don't fear, that we do the work, and that we find, we find God willing and ready to encourage us not to be discouraged at any step of obedience.